there's this weird disjoint between like men and women where I feel like men genuinely believe that calling women attractive we take as a compliment and it's like your opinion will as a stranger will never be a compliment Olympic Channel podcast that was London Marathon winner Madison de Rosario I'm Ed Knowles and this is the official Olympic Channel podcast we find the best people to talk about the biggest Olympic talking points every single week. If you love the Olympics, subscribe now, wherever you find your podcasts. Olympic, Olympic Channel, Channel Podcast. With a sprint finish, Madison de Rosario crossed the line at the London Marathon in first place in 2018. The first thing her mum was excited about, the fact that she got to meet Prince Harry. Her new royal friends aside, the Australian wheelchair racer remained one person to really keep an eye on in 2019. Away from racing, the three-time Paralympic medalist is really outspoken on big things like body image and online harassment. So we thought we'd send Matilda Lorme along to her apartment in Sydney, Australia. And overlooking the Olympic Park, they spoke about this weekend's Tokyo Marathon and de Rosario's Paralympic plans. But they began by talking about how her condition started. Olympic Channel Podcast. I was nearly four when I ended up in a chair. I um, have what's called transverse myelitis, um, which is when your body gets any kind of illness. I just had like a strand of the flu and your body attacks whatever the virus is, but then continues to attack itself. So like an autoimmune disease. Yeah. So my white blood cells attacked the myelin sheath, so just the surrounding of my spinal cord and it's quite, it's a weird process where it, you get partial paralysis and then full paralysis and it works its way up your body. And so it started at my feet. I remember like telling my dad that like, I couldn't feel my feet and I fell over and I was a drama queen. A drama a child. Kid? I was the worst. And at so my, four years old. Yes. And so my parents just didn't believe me because it sounds <laughs> like the sort of thing Madison would come up with. Cried, Maddie cried wolf. Yes. I was the worst. I was such a brat. And so my parents just straight up didn't believe me. And then at some point my mum was like, no, I think something's actually going wrong. And so we ended up going to hospital and, and all the rest. And it moves quite quick. And so... But how I, was it? You couldn't walk or you kept falling down? So I couldn't feel my feet. So I ended up falling down. And I think getting back up again at some point and then falling down again. And then it moves. It, it just works its way up. And so I think by the time we ended up in hospital, I was paralysed from about here down. And they managed to push it down to, down to waist wow. level. Yeah. Isolate it. Mm. So you could have been, I mean, completely almost completely paralyzed. Yeah, they, I don't, I don't, I don't actually remember any right. of it, but I remember being told they were getting like breathing machines ready and stuff like that because I worried it was going to impact my lungs, but they managed to push it down before we had to do any of that. But yeah, they weren't really sure how that was going to end. Wow. I think the way I see it, and I say this a lot, I had a very, very supportive family. And I think one of the things that they taught me, but, but my sisters as well is kind of bring in, I guess the attitude and kind of, command how you are treated and how you want to be treated and I know all three of us kind of have that personality and are able to bring that to the table so I'm very lucky I hear stories of other people with disabilities and how they've been treated and how how their interactions go and I've been very lucky that I haven't had all of the same experiences and I've had it in, in different ways and you know there's definitely differences in how I'm treated as to how an able-bodied person is treated but I think I demand to be treated a certain way and people tend to respond to that and I think that's made a big difference in, in what I've been able to do. Um, I do find that when we travel internationally, there is a big difference. So let's fast forward to London 2012. Before that, you, can, you had competed in Beijing 2008 as a youngster. 
obviously competing is internationally is a big deal, but how, how was London 2012 for you? London was the last time I sprinted and that was a weird, a weird experience. I think we, I think we always knew that I was going to be much better at long distance, but it takes so much base to build that and, and to make it. And I think physically I started shifting towards the longer distances just leading into London. Like my body was much more inclined to those things, but it was too close to games before we switch events or, or anything like that. So mentally I was going into these games, not fully wanting to be racing in the events that I was racing in. And I was also very injured. I had like about four or five kind of ongoing injuries that were all brought on by sprinting. Um, and so we were trying to maintain all these things going in. And because of the, just the sheer load, once you get into the village, they, they kind of all came together. Yeah. And I remember, um, lining up on the start line of the 400 and just physically not being able to breathe from one of my injuries and pretty much like having given up before the race even started. I made the finals in my events, but that was kind of the upper limit of what I was ever going to achieve. And I think our goals were so much higher that going into it, the only event that I thought I could end up on the podium on was the 800. And I finished in, in fourth, which is such an ugly position because it's not relevant. No one cares about fourth place. It's so close, but it's not there. But at the end of the day in racing, it's so black and white. If you're not on the podium, like no, no one, one remembers. We even call like silver and bronze medals, minor medals. For, like it's a whole mentality. And on the one hand, I love how black and white it is. If you put the work in and do everything, you'll be on top of that podium. Um, but it's really awful when you're not at that level, that kind of gray area is such a yucky place. Um, and after that 800, I finished fourth and I think I had the 400 left and that was the race where I, like you see a photo of me on the start line and my coach just commented on it. She was like, you looked like you'd given up before the race even started. And so London was a, such an emotional experience. Like I was going in and I was pre-selected for it, which kind of meant that people thought I had potential to be on the podium and I didn't. So I felt I had underachieved and, you know, I felt awful about the entire thing. And afterwards, it took me a long time to kind of bounce back from, yeah, just the, the mental side of it. Like we switched events immediately following. I haven't sprinted since, since 2012. I raced my first marathon the following year. Wow. And we've kind of been building, you know, on, the, on that long distance since then. And that's been the focus. But mentally coming out of London, I think was pretty challenging. So then how, then for Rio, it was an incredible performance by you as well, you know, an individual silver medal as well. How did you manage to redeem yourself and bounce back? Um, I was really lucky. I have such an amazing support network around me, both professionally and like family and friends. I'm very, very lucky. But I think we, we did a lot of work around kind of coming into each race as its own race, regardless of how important it was. And my coach and I, we kind of have this system that we kind of developed leading into Rio, where rather than setting goals of, even if we knew I had the potential to win a race or end up on the podium, that was never the goal going in. We never set goals on, on times or, or finishes. It's all what components of this race need to fall into place to put you in the best position to win this race. So going into a race, we'll set about three goals, kind of between two and four. And if we've achieved all of those things, then it's a brilliant race regardless of the results. And if physically I'm in a position to win the race, if we check these three boxes, that will bring the race together for me. And so one of my favorite races to date, again, I was, it was the 5K in Rio and I was in fourth <laughs> again, but it's one of my proudest races because I knew I, I didn't think I was in a position to win it just yet. We were still building up on those longer races. Um, but it was very challenging because the American women had three 
women in the race and they are so strong and they work together so beautifully. And so Louise and I set these goals going in. As I'd done every single one, I was aware that I'd done it and I put together the best race I possibly could. And I did finish in fourth, but I'm still so proud of it because of everything, the goals that we set, and that was a brilliant race. And, and Lou and I still talk about it as like, if we're trying to recap on, on races and what we need to build on and achieve, we'll kind of sometimes look back at this race, like that is like, that's the goal. that was the perfect race. How funny is that? Um, that's, that's not about winning the gold medal. It's about everything clicking in place. And exactly. It's the same as body. It's not about like having the body. It's about yeah. feeling that everything's in order. Right. And, and knowing coming out of that race that I put everything out there and did everything perfectly. And that was the best it was ever going to be. And therefore, that's something to be proud of. And that event is now my favorite event. Like I, I love the 5K. And so I think to win it the following year, having learned everything we'd learned and being able to apply all of that with the same women in the race and to then win it 12 months later, I think made that so much more... That's so much sweeter because it was a very obvious stepping stone to where we needed to be. And so that's right. kind of cool to look back at it like that. And like 2018 has been an, in an incredible year for you. Did you ever think at the beginning of last year, we've just come into 2019, at the beginning of last year that you would meet Prince Harry? <laughs> no, I didn't. I love that that's everyone's highlight of my year. I remember after I won London Marathon, I was so surprised. I was not expecting it. It was a huge shock. And I get back to my phone back at the hotel and I just have a text from my mom that says, oh my God, can't believe you met Prince Harry. And I'm like, that's what you're drawing from. It was like, I just won my first major marathon, but she's like, but Harry. But Harry. <laughs> Did you have a conversation with him? Very briefly. Honestly, yeah. like it's all so quick and it's so formal. Like we're given so much prep beforehand of all the things we have to do. Like you have to accept the flowers in a certain hand and put them on a certain side of the stage. Like there's all this stuff you have to do. But he's so lovely. He remembered everyone who'd won previously. Like he had a chats with, you know, different athletes and stuff that were there. So he's, he's so lovely. He was very nice. And we've got the Tokyo Marathon first up for 2019. Tokyo 2020 is looming around the corner. Have you been before? No, I haven't been. I've never done this race before. Um, I heard last year it was snowing the week of the race, so I have no idea how that's going to go. It's going to be the practice for, uh, for gold at Tokyo 2020 Paralympics. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think it's, it's a very, very similar course, so I'm really excited to get out there and race it and get a feel of the, what the roads are going to look like leading into 2020. I have two opportunities to race it before the Games, and I think we're definitely going to try and do both. Um, you know, Tokyo this year and Tokyo in 2020. Um, but yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to it. There's some brilliant athletes that are going to be there, so, uh, very, very elite athletes. So to kind of get the experience of racing this marathon with a lot of the women who are going to be there in Tokyo, I'm actually really looking right. forward to it. I'm a bit nervous, but I'm really looking forward to it. Olympic Channel Podcast. So 2018 was a mega year for Madison de Rosario, but with the added exposure, the wheelchair racer has had to put up with some unwanted attention. She's been on the receiving end of some messages that she says is harassment. Those close to her said it was best just to ignore them, but she didn't want to. Instead, she put the screenshots on her Instagram and is facing them head on. Olympic Channel Podcast. There's this weird disjoint between like men and women where I feel like men genuinely believe that calling women attractive we take as a compliment. And it's like your opinion will, as a stranger, will never be a compliment. Like, you know, when, like if a friend tells you you look like beautiful today, then that feels really good. If a stranger does it, it makes you so uncomfortable. It's, it's so gross. It's, it's, and there's no positive emotion that comes from that. And I feel like there's this massive disjoint where dudes just don't understand that we genuinely don't appreciate it. And it, 
doesn't leave a positive impact. Um, those ones, sometimes they're kind of scary, um, a little bit, mostly because so many people know where I train and, and all the rest, and sometimes they'll throw that and like they'll say some creepy comment, like, oh, I saw you in Olympic Park today, or like, I'm in Olympic Park tomorrow, and I'm like, please don't be in Olympic Park oh tomorrow. Like, <laughs> you know, that's kind of stressful. Do you reply, or do you just kind of ignore them? No, so I'll very rarely reply directly. The one thing that I did start doing, um, which I've had to take a break from because it kind of gets a lot of pushback and it's not always nice, is rather than replying, I'll kind of screenshot them and share them. And at first I was kind of doing it for my own validation. It was purely selfish because I felt uncomfortable and I wanted someone to tell me, hey, this person's being gross, so I would right. feel better about On your it. Side. Exactly, it was purely selfish. Um, and then I started getting a lot of messages from, from young women being like, oh, I thought I was the only one receiving these messages and I love how you handle this. You handled like this. Now I have said this to this person and I've got all these amazing, amazing messages back saying like, hey, seeing you do this made me feel like I could, like don't have to deal with, with these kind of comments. And so that was actually a really amazing, like probably my favorite use of my platform. And it was so simple and so easy yeah. just sharing it because I think people do love the anonymity of social media and there's no repercussions of saying something really creepy or gross or offensive to me online, there's nothing that I can do about it realistically. No, and they take advantage of that. Exactly, but then kind of, I guess, flipping that and using it to, I guess, empower other women and anyone else that's kind of being like harassed online that it's, you know, I think you feel isolated when it happens to you because you just do, but kind of sharing it, thing that happens to everyone and you don't actually have to be passive in it. I think we tell women so often that they have to be passive or be the bigger person. And that's the big one that we do. It's like, don't respond, be the bigger person. Like, they're just being a guy, guys are gross. And it kind of forces us to be passive in essentially our own dehumanization, which I'm very adamant that I will never ever do. And I think if I can use my platform for one thing, it would be to teach girls that you never have to be passive in this. And there's socially, there's so much push for us to be. We have this view of women that we want. And in the smallest ways, we demand these things of women. And, you know, I think it's, in really little things like, you know, boys will be boys, or we say like, you know, girls mature faster than boys, so like be gentle on boys, but we never say to boys, girls mature faster than you, use them as an example. Like we never, we're saying that they're better or more mature, but we're never saying, hey, do this, we're saying, hey, like kind of come down to this level and like, you right. know, You're pander to excusing it. Excusing their behavior. Exactly. But we're never putting it on the flip side. And whenever I get these awful messages, nearly everyone in my life is like, I'll oh, just ignore it, it doesn't benefit you to interact. But it does and it doesn't benefit me to ignore it because it's still there. It's still this constant, you know, barrage of comments and, and this constant feedback that's really negative. And I think doing something with that is so much healthier than, than just ignoring it. And if yeah. I, yeah, honestly, it's like easy. Well, you feel or you feel harassed when you're doing these messages. And how does it I mean you're dating uh, a teammate, right? Josh George. No, not anymore. We broke not up. Anymore. We broke up. Yeah. No, when was that? Is that recent? June, I think, June or July. He's in San Diego these days. Okay. But we're really How good friends. Feel? It's all okay, really, good. really good. Yeah. I, I kept the dog you. in the breakup and we're really good friends. So pretty much like <laughs> I came out of this really great. <laughs> you got the dog. Everything's okay. Yeah. I mean, but did he, did he, for, like when you were dating, did he, you know, kind of read your sleazy comments? I mean, honestly, it was a massive shock to him more than anything else. And that was another thing is if I show, like, I have a couple of like guy friends, same, you know, all athletes and stuff we kind of switch phones and I read their messages and they read mine they're like we live in different worlds like it is like we're both all like equally accomplished or they're more so than me for the most part and they get we get equal amount of messages but the content of them is so vastly different so that different. it's nothing it's exclusively because like I'm a woman that I get them and I'm like objectified 
sexually so right, as a woman. Exactly. And yeah. I feel like people maybe take advantage of the disability as like, okay, you're a woman, you're already weaker. Mm-hmm. You have a disability, I can take advantage even more. Because you're probably not confident. You're probably yeah. not going to say anything. And yeah. I'm going to get away with whatever I can do. 100%. So I got a weird one. This was in person the other day. A guy kind of came up to me and was being super forward. And essentially I was like, hey, I'm really not interested. And then his response was like, um, someone like you, you shouldn't be saying no to someone like me. No. Like, you're lucky that someone like me would even talk to you. And I was like, this is so uncomfortable for you. <laughs> like, this is the worst. And I didn't know what to say. And like, I've seen that in writing before. Like, I get that's one that I get a lot. I've never had it happen in person, but I was like, this is like ridiculous. It's yes. horrendous. So you yep. just you kind of just left. Yeah, no, that was not worth the interaction. That's horrible. Um, yeah. How does that happen online? I mean, guys, they write to you, they see that you're not writing back. Yeah, if I don't reply, they kind of turn nasty real quick. Like, I get called so many names and they're like, oh, like, you should be flattered that I messaged you. It was only because, like, or whatever. So another thing I wanted to talk to you about was body image. You've been outspoken about people not searching for the perfect body. Why is this not the right priority? I think as an athlete but an athlete with a disability is an interesting platform because on the one hand as a person with a disability there is nothing that you can do to work on your body to make it perfect or you know stereotypically how we want to view you know bodies and all the rest and that's never ever going to change so it's kind of an interesting space to be in and then on the other hand as an athlete you have to have so much respect and love for your body and you need to work with it to push it as hard as you're going to push it. And it's this constant evolution. You have to be okay with constantly changing. Your body kind of becomes a tool as opposed to, like it serves a purpose, a very obvious purpose. And I think we don't think about what it can actually achieve and what our body's purpose is. And our body's purpose isn't to look good. And the idea that we have of the perfect body is so narrow that so few people actually fit into it. So it's such this, it's this unachievable, unrealistic goal that is so damaging that we have is the ideal. And I think as an athlete and as a person with a disability, I've been forced to come to terms with my body because there's so many things about it that are so contrasting to what the perfect body is. And also being okay with constantly wanting to improve the body that I'm in because that is my job. And it's okay to love your body at every step of the way because of everything that it's capable of. And a lot of the time, like I, I say that I'm proud of my body because of everything it can physically do. And I get back that, yes, I can be proud of it, but my body has achieved stuff. Like, and people often come to me and they're like, but mine hasn't. Like, so what do I have to be proud of in this body that doesn't race marathon? So how can I love my body? Yeah, and I think it's, if all your body does is provide a home for you, then that is absolutely enough. That is exclusively its purpose. Anything above and beyond that is, is above and beyond and it's different and, and it's okay to want to change it and improve and be better, but you have to love it every step of the way. And I think that's the bit that we missed out on. We expect that we'll love it you know, in the future when it looks like this or it can achieve this. But the fact that your body is working towards those things is enough to love it for. And I think we often miss that step in the middle. So what are the goals for the Tokyo 2020 Paralympics? It's complicated. It's, I definitely have goals for Tokyo, but it kind of almost feels like Tokyo has its place in like a much bigger, plan um, and I think this is one of the things that comes from like my drive isn't to win I think after Tokyo I still have so much more that I can improve on and so I mean right now all we're kind of thinking of like the planning all ends you know in September 2020 like that's what everything is building up to 
And when we get there, it's going to be everything. Like it's so encompassing. It's you know everything that we've done. Every decision I make now is about how is this going to affect me. You know, in August, September of 2020. And I remember my poor like sports like I had her in the room for like two and a half hours the other day, just like stressing about how everything now is so relevant to then and how that puts so much pressure on every decision that I make now, like a year and a half out. Um, but it is, and you know, I've never won a Paralympic gold medal and it's definitely something that I, I want to do. But I think once Tokyo's over, like we'll have all new goals again. And it's kind of just a, you know, a, a, a massive event, but it's just a massive event kind of in a much bigger, I Much guess. bigger plan. Yeah, and yeah. And you just kind of work, work into something else, I guess, from there. Yeah, and as soon as Tokyo's done, there'll be new goals, you know? So yeah. it's, it's interesting to think about like that, but right now it's everything. It's Winning gold everything. at the Paralympics. Yeah. And it's so funny, because you're Australian, and I think Australia, like Sydney 2000 Paralympics was instrumental in kind of bringing Paralympians, Paralympic Games to the world stage, because it was an amazing show here. Yeah. But at, at some point, you know, we've kind of been thinking about this, and para-athletes almost don't have the same notoriety or fame mm -hmm. I guess as a, as, an, as a Usain Bolt or an Alison Felix or a Sally Pearson for yeah. example you think it's ever possible for or why why that is why do we see people with athletes with disabilities and we don't you know admire them on the same stage as we would a you know an able-bodied elite athlete I think it's a really simple reason I think socially we when we think about you know Sally Pearson or Bolt we think of athletes and we admire them as athletes. When we think of an athlete with a disability, we're so programmed, trained to see the disability first. And so it's hard to look past the disability and see them as an athlete. The, the disability always comes into play as a factor and a bigger factor than it actually is. Um, and so I think getting to know athletes as real people changes that. And I think Com Games did enormous things to do that. I think we really got to know athletes with disabilities and it's the first time in 10 years in my career that I've been seen as an athlete and not an athlete with a disability. And that doesn't happen very often for us. We're never put on the same level. There's always, even the language we use, we use athletes and para-athletes and right. there is no reason for it. And it's something that I think language is so powerful, but we keep trying to use this language and I think it does impact how we view athletes. Um, and specifically athletes with disabilities. And so I think Com Games with the integration, and it wasn't a full program for us, um, so not everyone kind of got to be seen and all the rest, but it was a massive step and we got to just see athletes with disabilities exclusively as athletes. And then we had so many personalities. And the fact that we had, you know, Kurt as a flag bearer for closing ceremony, I think was a really powerful thing to, to, to broadcast and to show. And I think that does make a big difference to kind of just say, these people are exclusively athletes. And I think we'll just start seeing this and that is our identity. I think it will change. Olympic, Olympic Channel, Channel Podcast. Big, big thanks to Matilde and to Madison for that. Remember, it is the Tokyo Marathon this weekend and it's on olympicchannel.com behind the paywall in the USA. Last week, we had on double Olympic champion cyclist, Christina Vogel. She's an 11-time world champion who was paralyzed in a training accident. And incredibly, she holds no anger towards those involved in the accident. I am 
personally immensely proud of the interview and really do urge you to listen if you've not already, especially if you're in need of an injection of positivity. I was really honoured when one of the best track cyclists of all time, Anna Mears, wrote on Facebook saying that Vogel speaks about the importance to learn from her accident rather than view it with anger. Hashtag respect. If you like that podcast or this one, then jump in on the comments on those athletes' social media posts and tell them all about it. Or tell me. You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at Eddie Knowles with an I and an E. You can also follow us at Olympic Channel across all platforms. Big thank you to everyone who's already subscribed to us every single week. And if you don't, why not? Five-star ratings on the podcast app are always welcome as well. Please do that if you haven't done already. Okay, that's enough for now. See you soon. Think like an Olympian. Olympian.